that I may have lost a little bit of credibility last week with my um, bold proclamation of my love for 90s music. I did mean the more grunge side of 90s and not the Spice Girls, just to clarify. <laughs> to clarify that. thought I would double down on music appreciation this morning. But instead, about, instead of talking of the uh, 1990s or even the 1890s, Let's talk about the 1790s. Let's talk about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, born January 27th, 1756, died on December 5th, 1791. Now, there was a movie that came out in the mid-80s that was a fictional dramatization of a relationship among two contemporary composers. In, uh, in Germany, <clears throat> and if you were in a band class like I was, or a choir, and the, your teacher was out, uh, likely you saw this movie at some point. Um, Antonio Salieri was a perfectly adequate composer. The movie opens on Salieri in a sane asylum going on and on and on about how his life has been tormented by Mozart. The movie goes on to uh, unfold this uh, relationship between a perfectly adequate composer and this young, brash, inflammatory, boisterous, Irreverent, crude, prodigy, Mozart. Salieri had worked his entire life to be uh, more than just an adequate composer. Mozart was born that way. Salieri, now listen, Salieri had dedicated his life to God. Mozart could care less. At a crucial moment in the movie, Salieri gazes upon the crucifix in his room, points at it, and says these words. From now on, we are enemies. You and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature as far as I am able. I will ruin your incarnation. 
when we have a passage like the one before us today in Ecclesiastes, we are faced with the absurdity, the vanity, the vapor of a world, life under the sun, when it comes to justice, right? The rain falls on the just and the unjust, but the unjust don't feel it because they have the just's umbrellas. I invite you to give your attention this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. Stand if you would as we hear God's word. As Koheleth writes of the absurdity of those who do wicked deeds. Then I saw, verse 10, the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also absurdity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is God's word, and it is absolutely true, and it is given to us this day in love. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you have breathed these words. They are your words. The pages of these holy scriptures bear testimony to the work of Jesus, who has given us the Spirit, to bring us from death to life. So Holy Spirit, as you have been present among us this day, so be present now and open our ears that we may hear, our eyes that we may see, and our hearts that we may understand. For all of these things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The issue before us in this text the way in which this text finds its solidarity among the human experience 
is in this area of justice. Or what Koheleth notes as injustice. It's when he goes to the funeral of one who did wickedness and all throughout their life they were praised in and out of the cities where they dwelled and among the people that they did wicked things. He's contending in his own heart, much like Asaph did in Psalm 73 about seeing how it goes well for the wicked. In Psalm 73, Asaph says that their bodies are, are fat and slick. They are, uh, they're enjoying all that is life. You and I may have had this experience where following fearing, and by the way, when the Bible talks about fearing God, it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean uh, I'm afraid, like something jumped out and scared me and I'm afraid. It means that um, I fear, I recognize, I take stock of the holiness, the righteousness, the, um, the greatness of God. And I respond appropriately to him uh, because of that. You and I may or may not have had this experience where we have uh, seen because we have followed God, feared God, obeyed God, that something has gone very badly for us while we see someone else who who makes no boast in God, who has no claim uh, to following God, to believing in Him, to trusting in Him, where things go incredibly well. These people could have been incredibly vile or wicked. It's much like Salieri when he points at the crucifix and says, all that I get in this world is the ability to know how much I'm not and how good Mozart is. And he's angry. He's angry. So one of the things that we have to believe is that there will be justice. There will be justice for the unjust. It's like David said earlier, like, it's great that God is is merciful, but if God is only merciful, then what appeal do you and I have to make when things go horribly wrong in the world? If God is just detached and distant and unaware and uncaring, what good is that? We have to believe that God is, that God sees us, that God hears us, and that God is going to bring justice. Because we've all had the experience, for some it's been mundane, and for some of us it's been monumental, of experiencing injustice when we see good and kind and decent people suffer and wicked people prosper verse 10 i saw the wicked buried they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things this is also absurdity 
So what's the teacher's source of wisdom? You remember that um, our teacher, our, our, our scholar pastor, has been attending to the world, to all the affairs of the world, has set his wisdom, his great wisdom on the world to try and see it, understand it, and report his findings. The occasion for his lesson today, a funeral, the burial of a wicked man. The reality that had been giving the preacher so much trouble was this fact. Bad people were able to enjoy a good life. It says, if God is just, the thinking goes, he ought to judge the wicked. But when the preacher looked around, he seemed to see the exact opposite happening. Instead of God judging the wicked, he does nothing. And so what happens? The moorings of law and order are off. There's no, there's no repercussion. There's no consequence for what happened. And so the wicked deeds continue. More people are emboldened and empowered to do wicked things. So why is it, friends? Why is it that bad things happen to people who fear God and good things happen to people who don't fear God? Why? Why does this happen? Now, verse 10, um, it's always encouraging when you're doing um, textual research for a sermon and the commentators and the linguists say, this is one of the most complicated books in a complicated, or complicated verses in a complicated book because it's hard to translate. Um, I think that the way that the ESV um, renders it and where the people were able to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things is the right, it's the right translation. The problem for Koheleth is that these people were being praised. Whether this was in their lives or in their death, we don't know for sure, but they were thought well of by those who would choose to think well of them, those who would choose not to see all of the glaring inconsistencies about their character, but just choose to see what they want to see. The people were praised, and it was absurdity to him. So why? Why does God seem to, look at verse 14, he asks the question. There's the vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. What does that mean? There are good people that have bad stuff happen to them because of the deeds of a wicked person, right? We saw yet again another mass shooting in the news, those college students that went to that, uh, that particular bar in Los Angeles did not ask to have their lives taken from them. The, the deputy that ran in to confront the shooter did not ask to have his life taken from him. So when you see wickedness um, happening to the righteous, it causes us to ask questions. And there's yet another category that he gives us as well. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. So we, um, we have a, an interesting um, place here in our community. We're a smaller church. We get a, a lot of phone calls from people looking for various forms of assistance. 
And we have to apply some due diligence. We can't just say, oh, sure, we'd be happy to help because um, what happens is, unfortunately, word gets around, right? And people that are just looking to kind of pay their rent or whatever by just appealing to various charities and various organizations will kind of make their rounds. Um, and so I have another friend here in the community that had someone uh, call him, give him a story. Um, they helped him. Uh, six months later, same phone call, same story, um, and they had to confront the issue, right? Now, I'm not saying that everybody that asks for help is trying to pull one over on you. But there are people that would prey on the good intentions of righteous people for wicked deeds. Here's the question that, if we're being honest, right, for the people that, um, that struggle to believe, these are real questions, right? Why is it that dictators thrive and pastors get thrown in jail? Why is it that cheating investors get bonuses and hard workers scrape to get by? Where's the fairness in that? What the preacher is contending with here is is the reversal in this life of retribution and reward. Bad people get the good stuff. Good people get the bad stuff. And the reason, according to him, that he's so frustrated is because there seems to be no swift punishment coming from people who do evil. When crimes are quickly and decisively dealt with, it can serve as a deterrent for those who would otherwise try to tempt fate and go down similar paths, right? There is, in my uh, coming towards my subdivision, a road where the speed limit is very clearly 30 miles an hour. I know this because the city of the colony has told me that. What are you laughing? Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> they've, they've told me personally, yeah. It's very kind. Those of us that have been told personally by the city of the colony now are very attentive to drive 30 miles an hour down this road. And then people fly past us. Can't they get a personal notice as well? (laughs) We've experienced when we see people that have allegedly purported crimes that have brought great sadness and justice seems to stall. Mistrials are declared. Juries are hung. Families get no relief. So what happens is we try to ask why. We try to understand why God is allowing what he's allowing. We try and get to the bottom of this great mystery. But verses 16 and 17 tell us that we can. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eye see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. What happens when, we, when the finite tries to parse the infinite to try and understand God's depths, his implications is this. We can't do it. 
We can't answer the question. We can't, um, we, we don't know why God permits what he does and seems to act slowly when we expect him to act quickly. One of the things, however, that we have to consider is to not confuse God's patience or tolerance with weakness. God is patient. One of the things that we see over and over again in the scriptures is that God is patient, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards those who fear him. It doesn't mean that God will not judge wickedness. It just means that God is slow in judging and thank God that that's true. That he is a God of mercy and he is a God of second chances. Beloved, the reason that we think that God should act much more swiftly and much more quickly in denouncing the injustices of the world is because we have made light and small of our own inadequacies and our own injustices, and we have made great and large the injustices of those around us. If you want to know why bad things happen to good people, Look at the cross of Jesus. If you want to know why good things happen to bad people, wake up in the morning and thank God for mercies that are new every day. Ray Bradbury's novel Fahrenheit 451 describes a future America where firemen are commissioned to burn any house that contains books. So his novel was an attack on the television culture of the late 1940s and how it was destroying the interest in books and reading. So in the story, a secret society forms for the purpose of remembering great works of literature. In order to join, you must have memorized a certain classic. So in the story, the protagonist, a guy by the name of Guy Montag, is accepted into the society because he knows Ecclesiastes and Revelation by heart. After a nuclear bomb destroys his city, the final page records Montag's musings. To everything, there is a season. Yes. A time to break down and a time to build up. Yes. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Yes, all that. But what else? What else? Something. Something. And on either side of the river, there was a tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Beloved, that we would memorize both Ecclesiastes and Revelation to have a good understanding of where we are, but also a clear picture of where we're going. There is, in fact, a God who is neither silent nor slumbering but who sees and who hears the cries of his people. The just shall live by faith. The faithful shall fear God. You, you see the only hint here in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 12, of what will ultimately be the final conclusion of the book. Right? In chapter 8, verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. The only way that Koheleth ultimately can land is to ultimately resign himself to say, it's going to be okay, 
just keep trucking along. But is that the picture that the Bible really gives us, friends? Is that the picture of just breathe deep and keep trucking along? That's the second thing I want you to see this morning is that there's going to be relief for the weary. It's not just that. There will be judgment. There will be justice. And one day everything will be set right. How do we take rest and relief? How do we find that here and now? How do we not just go on autopilot and numb ourselves to everything else going on in the world? How do we attend to our own hearts when all we see is despair and disorder? So the teacher commends joy, right? The teacher commends joy. Verse 15, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. In commending joy, this is not a, this is not a grit your teeth and bear it and pretend that joy um, is something that we have. This is, this, is an, this is an invitation, friends. Listen, this is an invitation to engage in resurrection feasting. As one writer put it, what should a man do in a world of powerful kings and wicked men who look as though they got away with it? He should prepare to make merry. He should prepare to make merry. Upon the hill of crucifixion where the cross of Christ stood were two other crosses, one with a man who mocked Jesus and one with a man who feared God and believed in Christ. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. The relief that God provides, the reversal of retribution and reward that the preacher saw under the sun was fully and finally realized in Jesus. It was Jesus for whom all of the sins of God's people was placed and upon the tree Jesus was nailed so that you and I could engage in resurrection feasting. It is Jesus who rose from the dead conquering sin and death. It is Jesus who has ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It is Jesus who pours out his spirit among God, upon God's people. It is Jesus that sets a table before us even in the presence of our enemies. God balanced the scales of injustice through his own son. This means that the vilest offender can be brought near. Jesus welcomes scoundrels and sinners to his feast. If you trust in Jesus this day, this feast in the wilderness is yours and mine to enjoy. While the wicked scheme against God, the righteous are brought near by the gracious invitation to come and feast. When the wicked kings and all of the principalities of the world are set up against God, we say grace and give thanks and dig in. (laughs) We celebrate the Lord's death and proclaim it until he comes. We host countercultural party after countercultural party because we are infusing our future into our present. Whenever we gather together as the body, we are having pre fall fun with resurrection hope. 
That is how you gather together with the body of Christ, isn't it? Free fall fun with resurrection hope. This is what we do together, right? We host parties. We don't sit on our phones and stare at our television and bemoan the falling apart of the world, right? We don't do that, do we? Ever? Nor do I speak in hyperbole, ever? No, we, that's not us. That's not our, that's not our story. Our story is not to look around and see a world falling apart and saying, what have you done, God? Our story is to look at the cross and see it empty and the tomb and see it empty and look at the table and see it full and look at the spirit and see him blowing and say, God, this is what you're doing, right? Goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Right? We don't gather and feast because it's our consolation prize. We gather together and keep the feast because this is precisely the hope that animates our present and our future. Yes, there is vanity under the sun. Yes, we see injustice that is hard to accept or understand. Yes, we have a lot of hard work to do. Nevertheless, there is joy for us in the ordinary things of life, eating and drinking and sharing fellowship with the people of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work, it is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. We labor, but God nourishes and sustains us. There is a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. Dear friends, what is your hope? If you're hoping that you're somehow going to feel like life is fair, stop it. If life was fair, Jesus would not have clothed himself in human flesh and you would have gotten what you deserved. Life is not fair, but God is good. There's a lovely story and I've been holding on to it for a long time. And I preached a series on hospitality and never told it. So it's going to fit here. And you can decide whether or not it fits. There's a short story that's always enchanted me. That of Babette's feast. A long time ago in Norway, there lived two elderly ladies. They were tall, slender, graceful, and once extraordinarily beautiful. But they had never possessed any article of fashion. They had dressed demurely in gray or black all their lives. Their names were Martine and Philippa, after Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon. Their father had founded a Christian sect where members renounced the pleasures of this world, for the earth and all that it held to them was but a kind of illusion. And the true reality was the new Jerusalem toward which they were longing. For this reason... 
these women renounced marriage and lived very modestly. Living with them, however, was Babette, who served as their maid. She had come to their door as a friendless fugitive, almost mad with grief and fear. In Christian charity, they took her in. For 12 years, she served them faithfully without ever revealing her true identity. Near the end of the story, we learn that she had been a Parisian gourmet chef at the Café Angelis. During a time of political upheaval, a civil war, she was forced to flee France. The first day Babette was in their service, the sisters explained to her that they were poor and that, them, to, that to them luxurious fare was sinful. Their own food must be plain as possible. Babette complied. Throughout these years, a friend in Paris continued to renew Babette's lottery ticket. One day in the mail, Babette learned that she had won the French lottery. The prize? 10,000 francs. In that time and place, she was rich. After much effort, Babette convinced the sisters to allow her to cook them a real French meal. She returned to France in order to handpick exotic ingredients and expensive wines, which were eventually shipped to Norway. The meal was exquisite. The sisters and their guests had certainly never tasted anything like it. The author herself describes it as a taste of heaven, of, of having been given one hour of the millennium. At one moment during the meal, one of the guests, a general, gave a speech. A line in that speech summarizes well the author's theology, borrowed, I believe, from Ecclesiastes, in which he says this, Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it in gratitude. After the meal, as Babette was surrounded by more black and greasy pots and pans than her mistresses had even seen in their life, this conversation follows. Martine said again, they all thought it was a nice dinner. We will all remember this evening when you have gone back to Paris, Babette. Babette said, I'm not going back to Paris. You're not going back to Paris? Martine exclaimed. No, said Babette. What will I do in Paris? And how will I go back to Paris, madames? I have no money. No money, the sisters cried as with one mouth. No, said Babette. But the 10,000 francs, the sisters asked in a horrified gasp. The 10,000 francs have been spent, madames said Babette. She had used all of her winnings to serve that one meal. The story ends with Philippa putting her arms around Babette and whispering to her, yet this is not the end, I feel, Babette, that this is not the end. In paradise, you will be the great artist that God meant you to be. Ah, 
she added, the tears streaming down her cheeks. Ah, how you will enchant the angels. As Babette illustrates, beloved, we are to enjoy God's good gifts. We are not to sit around and pout that injustice continues in this world. No, beloved, listen. Life isn't fair, but God is good. And for some of us, that means we've experienced some inconveniences in this life that are frustrating. But for some of us, we have seen, experienced, witnessed injustice that would cause anyone's belief to be shake, to be shook to the core. I do not say these things in a trivial way, dear friends. But because God is good and because God is just, we know that we can now enjoy life to the fullest. When Jesus said that I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, this in part is what he meant. Because there is justice. For those who are in Christ, it is vicarious. We have one, Jesus, who has stood in our place and received the justice that we deserved. And beloved, there will be one also day, there will be another day coming where there is also retributive justice. Retributive justice where, in fact, we see the choices of people being given their full reward. Whether it be Stalin, whether it be Hitler, or mass shooters, we will see yet one day come when they will receive the reward of the life that they have chosen. Dear friends, for us this day, the rest for the weary is found at the feast in the wilderness. He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow all the days of our life, and we'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come now. Let us prepare our hearts to keep the feast.